Hello and welcome. I am Haney. I'm Simon. I'm Alexander. We are Needip in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 182, recorded on May the 10th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on needipintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. So let's start with the latest news and insights. Yeah, and uh, we have made fun of the name Purview for over a year now. And now we probably will mention Purview in every single episode for the rest of eternity, since Microsoft have just rebranded all of their compliance products under the Purview umbrella. So what we used to call, like I said, a lot of the compliance products, a lot of the data compliance products, what used to be called Purview, and a ton of other features that are somewhat related to the integrity protection and data protection within the Microsoft 365 platform, as well as in Azure, have now been named Microsoft Purview and then the actual product. And I I think the good thing about this is that they actually make it simple to understand how should this be applied. And they align it with the licensing skews in a way, because a lot of the Purview products will be part of E5 compliance on the Microsoft 365 side. But a lot of things will also be licensed as an Azure service, which isn't really that different from how the Defender products are um, managed and named and purchased. And in addition to that, when they announced this renaming and a lot of general availability parts of that, they also decided to add a ton of news The most, I would say, important and interesting one is the Endpoint DLP, uh, or what is now called Microsoft Purview Data Loss Prevention for Mac OS Endpoints. What is this Purview (laughs) you're talking about? Purview. I have no clue. Someone please help me pronounce it. But we have have alternative ways of saying that. Yeah, I mean, Purview, think of another word that starts with P and go from there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh now no 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 we'll we'll just stop there and i will <laughs> you broke me again <gasps> so basically you're able to transfer some of the endpoint dlp features from windows to mac os which i think is a great addition i do however think that that product still isn't mature enough on windows even though i kind of like working with it You have also uh, received up to 50 new classifiers for data, and that goes across all of the products that actually actually do data classification. So again, a few things where we actually work with the same thing. And I think Mm -hmm. that's that's kind of key. Purview has kind of grown out of its its previous shell, in, in essence, and it now encompasses everything. And as you said, Data classification is not something that only applies to data or mm-hmm. your side of the fence. So it is, in my view, the right way to go to put this underneath its its own uh, umbrella. It's going to yeah. be interesting to see where this product goes because I kind of get the feeling that they're ramping up investments in the product as well. Absolutely, and where it's also important to realize how the Defender brand 
and the Purview brand works together and how mm-hmm. you actually need both sides to be completely secure. So when I talk about zero trust from an IT security point of view, you can only reach as far as to the application layer. But what you do then is adding the Purview features and products and services to that. And then you have zero trust down to the data layer as well. And in the long run, that's where we need to be. So I think it's great to see that they are focusing on it, that they are continuously extending those capabilities and they now make it much simpler to understand what am I supposed to do with this piece of code. Can I put in a request for an upcoming episode? Mm -hmm. I would love to dive into what zero trust means uh, because I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of of, um, preconceptions. Mm -hmm. I have quite a few and if you're not happy with one of them, I can whip up another. (laughs) But uh, I, I, I understand the word, I think, but I'm not sure that I understand the application mm-hmm. in specific computer areas. So have, have that thought yep. for another episode, please. Absolutely. And speaking about news, we also have a ton of news for identity and especially passwordless. I think the most important news item is that Google, Apple, Microsoft, and a few others actually have agreed on a new evolution of the FIDO standard. So now you will be able to use the same kind of passwordless authentication using FIDO across these different vendors. And I think that just that is just brilliant. Then you can Impressive. actually get that. Yeah. And and that they agreed. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> is rather cool. With that, they've also announced a ton of new passwordless solutions. And I think that's where we need to go, one way or another. I Personally, I'm not a big fan of smart cards, but the upside of smart cards is that you actually go passwordless and you have been able to do that for a very, very long time. I even have one customer that a year ago put all of their passwords into auto-renewal every week. So not a single person knows their own password. And that's done on-prem in AD. Uh, so you can go passwordless wherever you are, but we now have new solutions that enables passwordless authentication for Windows 365, Azure Virtual Desktop, and uh, RDS. We have soon support for passwordless signing with multiple accounts within the Authenticator app, which is great if you're a consultant. Uh, and we also have temporary access passes in Azure AD. So for Azure AD join. So let's say that you want to join a device to an Azure AD, but you do not yet have signed up for MFA, as an example. Then you can get a temporary access pass that allows you to join the machine, a one-time code, basically, and then you're in and can get yourself a compliant device to sign up for MFA with. So tons of investments, big ones and small ones, but passwordless is definitely what I see as the one of the focus areas within security for, for 2022. Can I ask what may be a very stupid question? I'm kind of mm-hmm. good with those. So with a password, yes, you technically have to torture me to give up that password, right? It's, it's hard to mm-hmm. steal my password unless you have me. With a passwordless token, such as a smart card, doesn't that kind of 
decrease security as someone can lift that card and run away with it and thus have access to the passwordless password, essentially? First, you don't need to torture you to get the password. You basically need to say, free Star Wars Lego over here, just enter your credentials. Yeah. And you would enter it. <laughs> this may or may not have happened already, but yes. Yeah. So it's it's easy enough to steal credentials in, in a variety of ways. When you go passwordless, it's always that you need, in practice, more than one thing. So yes, you can steal a phone, you can steal a token, but you usually need something more than that. So to do passwordless authentication with your phone, you need your fingerprint. Uh, to do passwordless with a YubiKey or similar FIDO device, you need a unique key that you have granted access to. Uh, when you do it with biometrics, it only works on that device. So you need to steal both you and the device. So in in essence, you're just shifting the issue sideways yeah. and not necessarily forwards or backwards. Yeah, kind of. And for smart cards, you usually have a pin code as well. So it doesn't. It's not enough to just steal the card. And at that point, if you are such an important or annoying person <laughs> that someone would actually steal you and your authentication thingy and force you to authenticate, well, I think you have better, bigger issues than <laughs> getting access to your account then. I stopped listening around Star Wars Lego, but okay, yeah. I'll take it. All right. There has been talk, and I, I, I know that I've... I've I've hinted at this quite some time because Microsoft has hinted about this for quite some time. <laughs> now they've actually delivered on that hint. Yeah, editing Alexander here. So it turns out that no, it is not released just yet. There is a way to do this by a third-party tool, but the native implementation, it's not quite there yet. It's it's slated for May, but we'll see. I don't have any hard numbers. So uh, it's coming. And I'm sure it'll be awesome. It is now possible to put a Power BI presentation or Power BI report inside of PowerPoint. Woohoo! And it doesn't sound like much, but this is enormous. Just look at how, how do you generally disseminate the information in a boardroom these days? Well, hopefully you're not going to get a, a printed hard copy. It's still more than 50-50 that you are going to get one, though. If you're not doing that, you're probably staring at a very static PowerPoint. And if you're really unlucky, you're going to get a hard copy of that. But imagine being able to not only present the data with a good PowerPoint, you can also explore the data by just putting Power BI inside of the PowerPoint. This is really taking uh, the tooling for mm -hmm. data storytelling to a whole new level. I don't think this has been quite appreciated yet, just how pivotal this is for information dissemination. You know what I always talk, I'm always on about making data matter. Yeah. And few tools are better at making anything matter in this day and age as PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. You can think of that what you want, but that's the tool that everybody uses. And by using Power BI inside a PowerPoint, holy crap, that is a really interesting match. So I'm extremely curious to see what people are going to do with it. And I, I'm hoping that the in integration will be even uh, better going forward as well. A, a question on that. Would you be able to cache 
data within the presentation. Already done, yes. Yeah, that is super cool. So you don't yep. need access to the data sources. You can actually get, mm-hmm. this is what I want. I'm oh, just seeing right, you. no. Oh, okay. okay, so yeah. what's going to happen is um, you're going to get a static picture. You can mm-hmm. decide on what that picture is going to show. Yep. But if you want to interact with it, then it's going to contact the service. Yep. And that's not going to be cached inside of your okay. Power BI. Then again, that that's also a security issue, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, of mm-hmm. course, of course. Or a security reason. Yeah. Cool. And speaking of security, sort of, kind of, uh, you know, there's this um, Azure, what is it called? The, the portal where you can see if Azure is up or down. Uh, the one Google. that always... Well, <laughs> I was going there because, what was that? Service health. Yeah, the service health. The one that is always absolutely green. (laughs) Oh, Teams been down for two days. Nope. Teams are up through, according to service health. I'm I'm not enjoying service health that much until service health is down. Then I'll laugh. Anyways, there is now a Power BI known issues page, which will list, as it says on the tin, the known issues and the uh, fixed issues. And the fixes are going to be on there for, I I think it was 35 or 45 days. So if you have something that is not working as you think it should, you can always check on the um, the page to just figure out, okay, is this something that is known or do I need to put in a bug report for something? Really, really interesting mm-hmm. stuff, I think. All right. Uh, then we have some updates with static web apps. And I, I really thought that static web apps is something really cool that is going to be powerful in the future. But one of the main downfalls for me has been that the only ways to deploy to it have been GitHub and Azure DevOps. And not all organizations work within a solely Microsoft world. So there might be some other other sources that one might hold their code in. And pretty much there hasn't been an option to deploy from anywhere else previously. But now there is a preview of of having CI-CD support from both GitLab and Bitbucket. And I think this is kind of pointing the direction that there is probably also more tooling coming in just based on these first two coming in now. One will think that there will be also other following. So I think this is like a nice little uh, news item, but it is uh, quite important for this service to be possible to be used much more widely in the future as well. Because if somebody else is using some other tools, they're not just going to start using GitHub for this one particular use case. It makes no sense. Or Azure DevOps or what may it be. So really increasing the usability of this service quite a bit once these become GA as well. On the other side, of course, the other one of my favorite topics, which is networking. <laughs> I'm really happy that there's, there is like constantly coming new updates to the networking side in Azure. And it is mainly services getting more supportability for private links. And the main drawback with private links has been that well, you need to have, for example, premium tier from every single service to be able to use private link. And it kind of starts to crank up the pricing and the costs for your environment if you have to crank up everything to premium to be able to use the private endpoints. 
So as the first step, we have now in app service, we have in general availability, we have networking capabilities all the way from the basic tier and onwards. So you can go with one of the very, you know, lightweightest environments you can set up in app service and you right away have the support support for private endpoints. And again, I think this is huge because it just yeah. brings down the uh, the barrier to starting using mm. private endpoints because you don't have to think so much about which tier of the service you need to use. And also, uh, in another, I think, a major development is we now have a public preview for private link for API management. If anyone has used API management, you know that <laughs> uh, it has been a little challenged with net networking features in the sense that you need to have uh, the, I believe it's also the premium uh, tier that costs over 2000 euros to be able to leverage the networking features in production. Or you've had the developer, developer tier that also has the networking features. So um, to note, the private endpoint for API management currently creates a private endpoint for your API management so that that can be reached from within a private network. It doesn't actually yet integrate or make the outbound connectivity from the API management go into your network. Not yet. So just note, it is, I believe, the very first step in these networking features coming to API management. And currently it is just for the inbound networking access. And so I'm really excited to see where this is going to go. Small steps, but important yeah. steps. Exactly. I came across something actually literally an hour ago uh, that I, I tossed in here because I'm very curious to hear your views on it. There has been a vulnerability disclosed in Azure Synapse tenant separation. It's been labeled Synlapse, and it was actually reported all the way back in January. And uh, th this was reported to Microsoft. It was not disclosed. And Microsoft has, according to what I'm reading, done a number of mitigations, but have so far failed to completely solve the issue. Uh, as this company, Orca Security, uh, claims to have been able to bypass the, the mitigations. Now, the last thing they, they wrote here before they disclosed this issue was that Microsoft has fixed most of it and it is way harder to, to actually exploit. But it, according to them, it is still there. So the timeline is that According to them, they, they reported this on January the 4th, and it was late March after several escalations that Microsoft notified them that they had fixed it. And this was very quickly bypassed on the 30th of March. And they also pointed out that the keys that Orkin managed to, to download previously was were still allowed um, access and were valid. And those are Microsoft uh, internal keys, apparently. And again, on April the 10th, they received notification from Microsoft that the issue had been fixed and the keys that 
had been downloaded had been revoked. While the keys were successfully revoked, the fix was unfortunately still partial, and under 24, in under 24 hours, they were able to demonstrate another attack vector. And now we are in May, and they've decided that, yes, we need to disclose this. But there are a few interesting things. So the, the, um, the whole issue is that if I were to put in a secret inside of Synapse, that secret can be extracted from another um, a workspace, or I can create things in another workspace. But the, the two things that I, I'm confused with is, A, nobody in their right mind would put a secret inside of, of um, Synapse, because this is exactly what you use KeyPass for, or uh, KeyVault. It's, you, you don't do it this way, essentially. I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is an issue. Um, it should not be taken lightly, but I'm confused by the um, disclosure by, by Orca. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Well, I've, I've been reading up on this now, and I think this is turning into a blame game. <laughs> um, because, and, and I will read on to this, and, and we'll get back to it, because I think this is a very interesting bit because according to Microsoft's response to this they are basically blaming Redshift Redshift? <laughs> yes so the impact is a vulnerability in the ODBC connector for Amazon Redshift so they claim that this only affects Azure Data Factory then it's should Microsoft fix this or something else or someone else? So, uh, do they specifically say data factory or do they say Synapse pipelines? The vulnerability impact in the third party ODBC connector for Amazon Redshift allowed a user running jobs in Synapse pipeline to execute remote commands. Ah, a Synapse use, pipelines. Thank yeah. you. Uh, and then, if you exploited this, you could potentially acquire the Azure Data Factory service certificates and execute commands in another tenant's Azure Data Factory integration runtimes. Exactly, mm. and, and and that is not only ADF, it's also the same for Synapse um, pipelines mm. in this case. Yeah. yeah, and I think that is might be what they're uh, referring with the on-premise version to the self-hosted mm-hmm. integration runtime. Exactly. But yeah, I would say a bit of a poor choice of word. It's, it's not entirely accurately yeah. phrased. <laughs> I, I I agree, and, and suddenly it makes makes sense. Uh, yeah. as a good catch. Yeah, and I think this is this is something I would love to learn more about because we have spoken about this, the role of a IT security team within an organization, and for this to be accurate, the uh, incident response group at Microsoft, so the security response center team needs to fully understand every single product that Microsoft has. And that is just not possible. They they can't possibly be that broad in their knowledge. So they need to have security experts within every individual team, but someone then writes the blog post. So I think this might be, because we don't know the full story, we don't know since Orca, for good reasons, haven't shared exactly how they achieved this, but I think this can be a very interesting case to follow based on how does Microsoft operate with this? How does the underlying components they use 
integrate with this? Who should you who should you call when something breaks within Azure, but it's not necessarily a Microsoft-owned piece of code, even though Microsoft might be using it? And tons of other things. And like you said, there can also be reasons why Microsoft doesn't see this as their thing to fix because you have used it in the wrong way. And therefore, you should not build away stupidity. Then you should train the ones that are using it to use it in a proper way. And there are probably very good ways of doing this in a much better way. So that that I would agree with you on purely technical terms. Mm-hmm. That That is the way to do it. Yeah. From a political standpoint, if you let people shoot themselves in the foot, they will inevitably blame you. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and if, if the person shooting themselves in the foot, well, if they're big enough in the industry, well, you're going to get some flack. So, mm-hmm. But, I, but I, I, I hear you, and I'm also extremely interested to see as more and more workloads go to the cloud, th- this is one of the things that keep me up at night. What happens the day that someone figures a way to break out of their tenant and start doing things to another person's tenant? Mm -hmm. Because what I, I keep thinking about the, the, um, the BMWs that get stolen. Mm -hmm. According to BMW, it is impossible to steal a BMW because (laughs) the, the, the keys are sending unique codes and all that stuff. It's not possible. According to BMW. Ask my neighbor. That would be my point. Yeah. <laughs> this this happens essentially every day. Mm-hmm. But according to BMW, it's not possible. So the insurance companies go, well, this is not possible. You must be to blame. Mm. And and the, the way they probably try to get around that, again, my neighbor have lost two BMWs M5 <laughs> since I and moved in. Can, can I can what? I just oppose the word lost? <laughs> Someone have stolen two ah, cars. Yeah. Really? And I, 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 yeah. And I would say that they blame him for not keeping his car, car keys far enough from the car. Or in a Faraday cage. Exactly. Yeah. Which is utterly <laughs> insane. Like, like. How does that work? Uh, yeah, they have something that extends the, the um, radio connection of the key to the car. Yeah, and yeah. then you have the, the code and it starts. Uh-huh. And I have a former colleague that were, she had her car for less than 24 hours before someone stole it. And they were able to drown it, drown it, drive it <laughs> like 600 kilometers south down in Germany somewhere and just left it with the engine running. Because as soon as you turn it off, you can't get back in. So they probably <laughs> realized that it's too, too low on fuel to get it where they want it to go. Uh. And then they have to abandon it because they can't turn it off. And you can't fill it up <laughs> while keeping the car on. Or I don't know if you, it's possible to do that, but I wouldn't try it. And who on earth would not put the damn thing on a trailer? That's how you steal a car. <laughs> <laughs> Should yeah. we move on? I think so. Back to yeah. other topics. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so um, I was going to talk about documentation or architecture pictures can, can we can we keep going instead because documentation sounds boring it is kind of boring and i think that's why it should be talked about a bit yeah. like why do we do it 
So uh, you might know that I like to draw on things, <laughs> whether it's paper or in a presentation or whatever. And I I think drawings are very effective in uh, mm-hmm. explaining things and making sense of a complex architecture. But I also think that both documentation and architecture pictures are quite tricky because there is a high risk that it just becomes some document or picture somewhere that nobody ever reads because it is too long or you cannot make sense of the picture without reading 100 pages of text before you look at it. And so it becomes something that nobody wants to look at, nobody updates, and it's not really used. But also a lot of organizations put in a lot of time to create documentation. Whenever you're making any kind of change, you want to document it and tell what has been done. So I wanted to bring this topic up. And because, of course, for myself, if I draw an architecture picture, it's really useful for me to, you know, uh, kind of get a grasp of the environment in my head. But the thing is, will it be useful for the next person? Because if I'm just drawing the architecture picture for me, it's not really like, well, yeah, it'll be a nice exercise, but it's fine if I draw it on on a piece of paper and don't kind of put it anywhere if it's just for me. But if I can create it in a way that then makes it easier for the next person to come in and understand the environment based on that, uh, then it could be useful. So I I firstly want to ask you, like, what kind of... uh, examples of not so efficient documentation have you seen and maybe kind of like what has been the characteristic of that and can you kind of think about what makes for not so efficient and what makes for really really efficient documentation or pictures uh, that are actually used in organizations can i start go ahead full exports of all the gpos within an active directory at a point in time like with every single GPO, including the ones that are left at the default. <laughs> like, and this was the efficient. <laughs> yeah, it's documented. At it this documented. point in time, our GPOs looked like this. And the even better thing is when you combine that with for a computer in this OU, this is the actual GPOs that apply. Because you can't make sense of it if you get them all only. Mm -hmm. And then you apply them to each of the OUs that are actually relevant and get an almost identical export. And they are never updated. And you do the same thing with Intune. Why do I need the full exported policies? Like, it doesn't tell me anything because you don't know where things are that actually makes these apply. Mm-hmm. Three weeks ago, and I am not making this up, three weeks ago, a project at work asked the guys in the project to document all the policy settings in Azure. <laughs> all the policy settings that go default in Azure needed to be put on paper in order to be, quote, compliant end quote so yeah it still mm-hmm. happens and and mm-hmm. to add to that i've also been part of organizations which sets 
the default value of each GPO. So let's say that Notepad by default is blue. Then they need to apply Notepad should remain blue in the GPO. And that's like 4,000 settings, which just <laughs> locks it down to a point where it's utterly unusable and where it doesn't make like yeah <laughs> so could we move no on words. to good documentation <laughs> so kind of what i can hear from these examples sounds like there's too many details yeah yeah i i completely agree with that like mm-hmm. we don't necessarily need in documentation like specific settings that have been put because we can probably see those from the tool that we're using. Yeah. So there's no point in kind of just running an export and having mm-hmm. them somewhere else. Yeah. But what do you then think is a efficient way of doing documentation and what has worked? What's, what's kind of characteristic to it? So here comes uh, something that I've found out the hard way through the years is that documentation, either you do it in text uh, Text is text has the the benefit of being readable with or without any real context. A picture requires context, and either you bring that context with you in your head, or you find that context in the text. Mm-hmm. The context in the text that almost sounded like a good thing. So uh, it, it depends on who will consume the documentation and it depends on why you need the documentation. Do you need it to just get a grasp or do you need it in order to extend the architecture or whatever you're looking at? So I'm, I'm starting to come around to the idea that there is no one size fits all when it comes to documentation. And of course my pet peeve with almost all documentation is it only says how it doesn't say why. And I think and and I haven't done this because I don't work with code. But I do think that's the best way of doing it. When you have code with comments in line, which explain why is this piece of code here and what does it do? My two then, favorite comments in codes, mm-hmm. the first one is look closely now. <laughs> and the second one is oh, this code has bugs. All right. That is voice. It did. The the third one <laughs> is insert comments here before releasing to production. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. But but I think that because then you have an actual script or other kind of code that you can follow. Every step of the way, you understand what is now happening and why is it there or why was it there from the start. And then when you combine that with a repository which shows you changes, then that's the perfect way of documenting, in my opinion, because it's granular enough, it's easier to find, it explains every bit of the process. But how do we apply that to parts where you don't use code? And enter, codify everything. In the (laughs) end, that's the only way of doing it. Clickety-click is hard to document. And the only reason to do that is a standard operations procedure for first line or second line. Click here. You don't have to understand why you do it. Click these buttons in this order if you have this error and it will work. 
Mic drop. Isn't, isn't this why <laughs> yeah. we have power automates? Should probably have because of that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think there's a few really good points in there. Um, like I like if you're doing code, uh, it's of course good to have that commentary in there and document it and so forth. But the only issue there for me is like, how will you get the big picture of how everything fits together? Mm-hmm. Because you have to go through all the code to understand all the little pieces, but you still might not understand how it fits together. And so, do you, yeah, go ahead. Do you necessarily need that? Yes. <laughs> Are you? I, I will yes. say that yes. <laughs> like, but it might be because of I always come from like an architecture perspective and exactly. understanding how f- yeah. things fit together. But... I also think that that would be useful for anyone working in any kind of environment to understand how everything fits together, not in the detailed level, but in an overview level. Because if you have no idea of what the entirety looks like, you might in your line of code choose to do something that is kind of contradictory to everything around it. And so I've feel like kind of the one area where we should be focusing our efforts with documentation and architecture pictures is the overview. And most of the time, the overview can be like very high level. It doesn't need to have a lot of detail because that, it, that will be enough for most people. Just to kind of, it kind of helps to get the context, I guess, at least in my point of view. What exactly. do you think about that? I, I was just going to say what you just said. That's where you create a context that in, in in the next step gets applied to the rest of your documentation. So yes, the, this is how I try to make documentation. And the other side of, of or the, I should say the other benefit of, of doing it that way is that it does tend to stand the test of time better than a more technically oriented architecture designer or, or, or documentation mm. i have a ton of things to say about this but let's get back to this because i think we could do an entire episode on documentation because the way <laughs> i could. envision it is basically a visio where everything is clickable so where you can mm-hmm. find your little piece of technology which you can update documentation on, but you can't control the connections to the other bits and pieces. So you take responsibility mm-hmm. for your thing and then you can zoom in and out. That would be my preferred way of doing it because then it, it's basically what they try to do with SharePoint spaces. Put on a mm-hmm. VR headset <laughs> and dive into your SharePoint library. But you're, experience you're, not, the documentation. you're not contradicting each other. No, uh, but no. essentially, what what Haney is is saying that someone needs to do the the yes. complete drawing exactly, and that is so we have this fantastic way of looking at things as humans. Either you look at it from the outside in, as in mm-hmm. we start with the high level stuff and then we dive deeper, mm-hmm. or we look at it from the small parts and magically that's going to interconnect. And in in some ways, there are emergent properties of technical systems. When mm-hmm. you start to interconnect them, they're going to start behaving in specific ways, but not always. And it is not possible to to trust those emergent properties in our own technical environment. So that's why I think starting with the, the 
overview and then diving deeper and definitely having the whole thing at the same place, as, as Simon said, the, the mm-hmm. mother of all, all visios. That, that yeah. would be beautiful. That would be really cool. And I know like a lot of people hope that there would be like an automatic tool that could just, for example, read your Azure environment and make a beautiful drawing out of it. But unfortunately, at the moment, at least, uh, the tools that I've seen, like they might pull all the information out and create the drawing. But often that times they don't have that sense of grouping things together in a logical exactly. way that we as humans have to make it kind of easier to understand the different portions and how they link together. Mm-hmm. But maybe at some point we will be able to create something like that. This reminds me of something that was touted uh, a couple of months back. Microsoft said that they were going to be using GPT-3, the AI algorithm, to just like um, GitHub Autopilot, uh, or Copilot, sorry, uh, you should be able to, to to write DAX, the the code inside of Power BI, with GPT three, and everybody and their cat went, "Holy crap! This is going to be fantastic! Finally, I can code." And uh, a couple of weeks back, Marco Marco Russo, one of the the Italians, <laughs> kind of put his foot down and said, "Yeah, no, this is not going to work. In fact, it's going to be a complete disaster." Just because what you just said, Haney. The GPT or whatever algorithm doesn't know what it's doing. It's going to be syntactically correct, but it won't have a clue of why it is doing something. Mm-hmm. And as, as Marco said, if we have four hours to, to solve a problem, three and a half of them are going to be spent figuring out how are things supposed to work. And then actually implementing the fix, that's going to be 30 minutes, of which 15 we're going to have a cup of coffee. So yes, we're going to be able to have some help with AI, but I highly doubt that it's going to take our jobs. So we're probably going to be safe. Yay, I can still draw pictures. (laughs) Yeah, you can. (laughs) And you can always make the rest of us look horribly bad at any conference. And that's, yeah, it's always great to compete with you. Mm -hmm. I can't help it. (laughs) I, I think that might bring our discussion about documentation and architecture picture, pictures to an end. Uh, there is definitely more that could be discussed here. And, and you know, I think it's a, a kind of a art of figuring out the right level for the organization. And as Alexander said, figuring out who will be using mm-hmm. that documentation to have it at the right level. Plus then combining it with good documentation in your code, whether it's infrastructure as code or actually like application Mm -hmm. code, it doesn't really matter. But in that way, we can kind of have a cohesive picture where people can get a grasp of the whole, but also then drill into the details as well. And maybe not quite yet, at least that massive clickable uh, dynamic 3D documentation where we can dive in ourselves, but... (laughs) For, for some day. reason, I, I I envision this, okay, we need to go deep. Someone puts on this enormous diver's helmet <laughs> and gloves and goes, bring it on, and goes into the documentation. <laughs> some days it kind of feels that way. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't that it technical does. depth, like, in a nutshell? 
Well, it is. technical Hold depth the... and technical depth are two completely <laughs> different things. Um, I would not be so sure. The the craziness that created this technical solution was definitely deep. For sure. So you found something on was it Twitter again? No, you had you found a webinar, Simon. Yeah. Um one of my mentees, Maron, have started a user group which focuses solely on mentoring and career development. Uh, and especially for immigrants in the US, but also for any other person uh, who are interested in being a mentor or getting a mentor. So I would highly encourage you to turn into the second episode, uh, which has the title of Why You Should Be a Mentor, where several of my friends uh, will be sharing why they have decided to mentor other people within the community. Unfortunately, I'm not able to be there, uh, but uh, definitely check it out and follow that series because there are a lot of views that you rarely get at conferences or the more known user groups because Meron is excellent in inviting a very, very diverse group of speakers from all across the globe, anywhere in their career, uh, and with very different stories to tell. So I highly encourage you to join that on May the 14th, and I think it's 10 a.m. Eastern time, if I'm not mistaken. So we're uh, at mine is a couple of minutes, so we need to go through the the, the last few things. Uh, you want to go for the Scott Hanselman thing? Yeah, and I, I had the perfect example last week when we did our Saige Tech Days. And the screens were tiny. We had three of them. All of them were tiny. High resolution. You couldn't see anything. So Scott Hanselman tweeted like about two weeks ago how important it is to understand where you are presenting. Mastering Zoom, especially when doing demos, regardless if it's recorded or live demos. And you can't make things too big because whatever, like Scott says, whatever font size you have chosen, at least double it. And and have ensure to do that. Like think of it as being inclusive. And also if they, if whoever you're speaking to can't see what you're talking about, ditch the PowerPoint. Think of that when creating your slides, creating your demos, know how to use Zoom it or Zoom in Mac OS. And especially when you do recordings of your demos, ensure that you can Zoom them or focus on whatever you're talking about within the videos as well. It's funny you should say that because that is one of the primary reasons why I prefer mm, to exactly. record my my, yeah. my my demos because I can control all these things. I can have not only Zoom, but I can have call-outs, yeah. arrows, and cats, and all that in- <laughs> stuff that increases visibility and understanding. I just came back from uh, the Nordic Development Conference, the Nordic Developer Conference, I should say, in London. Uh, it, it's been great. I've... I've Talked at the NDC London previously, but this was the first time I was there in person. And uh, I'm going to be talking about this in, a, in in an upcoming episode. The whole looking in 
at a, a um, community that you're not part of mm-hmm. is very strange when you're used to be a part of a community. And th- there are so many things that we take for granted, right? But being a data person at a developer conference, it definitely taught me a few things. Um, and one of the things that it taught me is that developers have an even harder time with these things than we do because developers tend to show a lot of code. So that's, that's even more difficult. Mm-hmm. Some some solved it in a fairly good way. Some did not. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it there and come back. Do keep in mind that uh, Build is coming up May 24th to, through 26th. And also do keep in mind that Data Saturday Stockholm is happening on May 21st. And you don't want to miss the pre-con day either on May 20th, because either you can go have a sit in with Katarina Wilhelmsen talking about um, ADF, or you could visit Haney. Haney, what are you going to be talking about? I am going to be talking about how to use Terraform for uh, creating and managing your data platform solution. So your your favorite thing in the world, clicking. No. <laughs> the the other way no. around. No. The other way around, exactly. Oh, oh okay. Just less checking. clicking. Less clicking. Okay. And yeah. uh, there's also Data Weekender on the 14th, right? Yes. That is this weekend on Saturday. And there, like, if you're really interested in private links and networking, I'm doing a full hour session on networking in the Data Weekender. It is, like, aimed at the data side, but all the principles apply to the other past services in Azure as well. So even if you're not a data person, it might be worth it. So I, I, I'm working on a new session geared towards uh, networking stuff. And one of the things that I have in my abstract, and I think you're going to uh, agree on this, is this is not the session you want, but this <laughs> yes. is the session you need. <laughs> Word. Exactly. <laughs> and I think on that bombshell, it is kind of time to, to end this episode. Uh, it was wonderful as always. Thank you so much for coming on and we'll be back in another two weeks. And until then, have a good one. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need in Tech. Need in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder and Heini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at needypatech.com.